Welcome to Shoot This Now, the podcast where every week we talk about stories that should be made into TV shows and movies. My name is Tim Malloy, and this week my guest is the hyper-creative Benjamin Alfonsi, creator of Metabook, a publisher and a platform trying to reinvent the humble book. And in so doing, combine the best parts of books with the best parts of the media around them, the organs and blood flow and new musculature of story that surround the skeletons of stories, books. I also want to talk about skeletons. Halloween is behind us, and for another year, we've seen skeletons treated horribly. I read a tweet yesterday that asked if skeletons are a type of zombie or some separate kind of monster. But skeletons are the very core of us, the bones, and there's no greater sign of how afraid we are of ourselves than the way we portray skeletons, jittery and jangly and cursed, barely alive. When in fact, our skeletons serve us better than almost any other part of our bodies without the recognition of those body parts like hair or eyes or skin. They almost never break unless we make massive mistakes and we treat them like zombies or some other kinds of monsters. This week, Benjamin tells us the story of a man with two skeletons, one that grew over the other, rendering him unable to move until he suffocated on his own bones. This is a true story. And the evidence is on display in Philadelphia at a place called the Mütter Museum, which houses old bodies that need study. The man with the double skeleton was named Harry Eastack, and one of his final acts was to make the heroic decision to give the museum his two sets of bones, his two skeletons, so scientists there could try to help anyone else with Harry's fate. This story is inspirational, because these scientists are helping, even now, even as you listen to this. Harry's story is one of 12 in a new metabook project called The Face Phantom. An author named Kathleen R. Sands wrote moving stories about Harry and other inhabitants of the Mütter Museum. And then artists like Benjamin made short films around those stories. And musicians made songs like the one you're hearing now, Pulse, by Brian DuFord. During this episode of Shoot This Now, we'll also play more songs from The Face Phantom, which you can find at metabook.com and buy for what you pay for a normal online book, one without accompanying films and songs. I hope you like it. And now, folks, please enjoy this interview with my special guest, Benjamin Alfonso. A decade ago, the guy who runs Metabooks, a wonderful and generous... publisher, yeah. (laughs) A very kind man named Ken Simon published a book that I wrote called How to Break Bad News. And after it came out, people said, okay, no more books. We're not doing books anymore. (laughs) Malloy ruined it for everybody. And so then Ken joined you and some other creative people on something called Metabook. Can you explain what a Metabook is, how it works, and what your role is? Well, my role is I'm creator of Metabook. So I conceive and um, um, oversee all of the creative from films to music to visual aesthetics uh, interfaces everything uh, metabook is uh, sort of a hybrid uh, publishing company and production studio i think that we're definitely um moving more in the direction of uh production it derived accidentally and and organically i would say um i was i myself was a creative director on uh coffee table book and as part of that i had to design uh, and create um a digital app and when we saw what could be done with uh, that kind of book 
um, in you know different kinds of and putting that on different kinds of platforms and adding different media. The idea um, sort of just sprang. That's where we wanted to to start with each project from the beginning, thinking of it not just as a book that's going to be turned into a movie, but thinking of it you know in a 360 way from the get go, and and it just kind of sprang from there and and continues to evolve. And、uh, we we definitely run we definitely run more like a production studio than than a publishing house. Yeah, you know, there's this game we all play in our minds as we're reading a book, where we're kind of casting it and wondering who's going to be in the movie and is this part going to make it into the movie. Yeah,、um, yeah. Because we, or we're figuring out should this be a movie or a TV show, which is kind of the origin of this podcast is having stories like that.、Um, but then also, I feel like writers, Stephen King is particularly good at this. Will kind of give us、yes. musical cues for like here's here's the song you should have stuck in your head during this scene, and you all have just kind of done the work for us. You're like, well, you're gonna have your interpretation. Here's our interpretation. We went ahead and composed music for to read during this section. We went ahead and made some short films connected to this story, and that doesn't preclude anybody else from you know writing their own songs about it or making their own movies about it if they can work out the right situation with y'all. Um, <laughs> but it's just a cool starting point.、Yeah. It's just like let's do all of the creativity.、Uh, let's do the first round of creative output all at once. Yeah, it's it's a really fun creative process because you're not just、um, thinking of, of one medium. You're thinking of multiple mediums from the get go. And I think that you know good stories uh, inspire, uh, and whether they're on the page or on the screen.、Uh, I, they they just stimulate the senses, and I think that meta book、um, and what we're doing is is you know hopefully you know hitting a, a lot of different senses all at once.、Uh, a lot of the、um, films, for instance, are taking on a life of their own. Yeah, and one way people can see an example of what you do is the new project, the Face Phantom, which is a collection of stories by Kathleen Sands. As well as a collection of films, music, art.、Uh, what inspired the face mask? It's inspired by、um, the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, which, for people who don't know, it's、um, it's a medical museum. It's filled with all kinds of, you know, anatomical exhibits and and very、um, bizarre and I think you know beautiful kinds of、um, real life human body、um, exhibits. With this,、uh, it's、uh, there were twelve stories、um, to choose from. There are twelve short stories, each one inspired by an exhibit at the museum. All of them are so visual and very, very haunting. I mean, these are these are chilling stories. I think that that they kind of remind me of, you know, American Horror Story. And I think that, you know, we're here to talk about the possible, you know, feature film. But I think an anthology series. I could definitely see, you know, Ryan Murphy if you're listening.、Um, I think that. that That could be a way to go, <laughs> but uh, um, for me, you know, one of the stories called Boy Bone really stuck out, and、yeah. I made a couple of films about them. One a doc, and one a short doc, and one、um, a dramatic short,、um, mm-hmm. Rev Fantasti, that is sort of both of which were inspired by the story of this kid, you know,、um, who you know obviously eventually became an adult, Terry Eastlake, suffering this really bizarre.、Um, Medical condition, which no one has heard of. I had never heard of it. And、uh, when I, you know, researched、um, his story,、um, I was just so moved by this and so inspired that I ended up, you know, making these two films, and they're part of the Face Phantom Meta Book. 
And this museum that houses his bones, the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, can you describe what it's like to visit it? I had never been to the Mütter Museum, and I became very familiar with it, um, intimately so, uh, working on this project, because uh, it's all of the stories, and the film certainly is inspired by um, the museum. Um, I would say that... uh, it's it's a very visually stunning place. I find it a, a beautiful place, um, and it's uh, it can be. Some people find it very scary because a lot of the exhibits are um, anatomical. They're all um, about the human body. This is a location that has kind of a lot of Hollywood history. Like Leonardo DiCaprio, I guess, learned to crush a skull here for some for some reason. Leonardo DiCaprio uh, for Django Unchained by uh, one of my favorites, Quentin Tarantino, um, learned to crush his skull by uh, interviewing in-depthly the curator of the museum. And and apparently there's a very effective way of of skull crushing, which uh, Leonardo DiCaprio knows and uh, which the museum curator knows. Um, Isabella Rossellini, uh, Katy Perry, they've all famously posed um, at the museum. As a matter of fact, one of the um, very cool uh, going back to Ryan Murphy, um, the Morbidity Museum in American Horror Story Freak Show, which is that probably the installment of that anthology series that like was my favorite. Uh, that was inspired by um, by uh, the Mütter Museum. So the Morbidity Museum with the you know Siamese twins and jars and and all that kind of you know kind of what you know most people call creepy, very freaky stuff was. Um, directly inspired by that at least that's the word on the street and this is a museum that might sound i mean creepy is the word that first comes to mind and it's it's a thing where you sort of wonder like oh my gosh is this like exploitive is this like just for for you know the freakish aspect of it but the thing that i had to get past and realize is that all of this is real these are real people these are real bodies that are here and they're dealing with real medical issues that needed study um so this museum isn't just there to you know entertain us it's there because there are actual doctors and researchers trying to solve diseases and trying to to improve the world oh totally it's a part of uh the college of physicians of philadelphia which is a research institution and uh every single um exhibit there every specimen that's on display anatomical medical and otherwise is has some kind of importance uh, for you know the medical field. Um, there's you know rare diseases, um, very um, uh, unique human conditions. Uh, there's a historical aspect. There's a really sociological aspect to the whole thing. I mean, some of these uh, uh, things that are on display there are you know over a hundred years old. Um, then the sideline of that is that the human body and human. It, and, and the human stories that these exhibits and, and specimens um, tell are just really incredible. And I think that that's part of what the stories, you know, tried to uncover. And I think that that's what we're trying to do, you know, with the films as well, um, uncovering that, that human aspect to these things that you, know, you, you can almost look at as just very scientific or, or medical um, the kinds of things that really have a, a real story element to them. Let's, let's talk about the story that you and I both think would be a really good movie. When you go into the Muter Museum, one of the skeletons you see is 
honestly kind of upsetting to see because we're all scared of skeletons. I mean, we're just coming off of Halloween, even though we are all skeletons <laughs> ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. It's a skeleton with a lot of the a lot of the bones fused together. Um, the jaw is fused shut. The spine has been fused to other bones, which results in the posture of the skeleton kind of being tipped over. And the arms and ribcage have been connected because the condition that this person had, I guess it's called FOP, sort of replaced muscle with bone as he grew older from the time he was a boy until he died at age 40. Yeah, it's really incredible. It's called FOP. It's uh, it stands for fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva. I can't believe that I actually know how to say that now. Um, and it's essentially it's 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 essentially a very um, rare disease. Um, I think that even now there are far fewer than a thousand people in the entire world um, who are afflicted with this. Nobody's ever heard of it. I've certainly never heard of it. And yeah. what it is is essentially the bone. I'm, I'm sorry, the body developing a second skeleton. Uh, and it, it sets in usually in childhood or in adolescence, and the body just um, begins uh, developing a second skeleton over um, the skeleton, you know, that we all have. Yeah. And eventually, um, you know, uh, deforming, um, uh, incapacitating certainly and, and kind of suffocating um, the person suffering from this disease. It's, it's really, really, um, it, it's, it's, it's a, um, it, it's, it's a very moving thing to even witness because it, it's, uh, it's so rare and so, um, violent. It's, it's, it's really a violent disease. And Kathleen wrote a really good story about this as one of the stories in the anthology in the book, The Face Phantom, um, which starts off with a doctor kind of giving an overview of what this disease is. He's giving a speech explaining it and looking at the skeleton in the Meter Museum and describing the skeleton. People can go to metermuseum.org. Um, Muter is spelled just like mutter, so muttermuseum.org, yeah. and look at pictures of the skeleton. He's describing yeah. He's describing the stages of the disease, and then she flashes back to childhood of the person who became the skeleton and i think that's if this were to be a movie i think that would be a really good way to start the story so the skeleton is uh actually the skeleton of a real life person uh harry eastlack who uh was afflicted with this disease and was uh, died in 73, um, shortly uh, before his 40th birthday, which at the time was actually a pretty long lifespan for somebody with FOP. And as you said, the story starts with uh, his sister um, visiting his skeleton in the museum, which is something that she actually did in real life. He had a sister, uh, Helene, and then tells his story uh, in flashback um, uh, how you know he was as all of these kids are just a very, you know, um, healthy, uh, normal little kid who eventually gets afflicted with this disease in adolescence and um, you know, starts breaking bones that don't heal and then eventually becomes bedridden and incapacitated. Um, and I think that the story is very much uh, one of 
this incredible um, sibling relationship between uh, Harry and his sister, who is older and who, uh, for a time in his life, really was his his main caregiver, became his main caregiver, and uh, even uh, was was so close to him that even uh, continued to visit his skeleton even after his death um, at the Mütter Museum, uh, mm -hmm. just to spend time with him and to hang out with him, which. I've, I've always loved um, sibling stories. You know, um, you can count on me. You know, Count Vonnegut and um, Big Night. I, I love, I love movies that delve into you know sibling dynamics, and I think this one is so um, moving in a way um, because it's just a very unique um, brother and sister um, dynamic, and I think that has to do with the with the people who we're talking about. I mean, she's loyal to him all through his life, taking care of him and helping him through this incredibly painful, difficult situation, and is even with him in death. And it, the way that some of us go to the cemetery to remember relatives, she goes to this museum and just sort of sits there and looks at his skeleton. Yeah, his his skeleton is uh, really something to behold. Uh, the museum is is filled with uh, all kinds of you know, skeletons and skulls, and there's something that's very alive. Uh, about his, uh, when we were shooting um, the, the short film Red Fantastique, it was pretty cool because we were, we couldn't actually, we were trying to film, he's in a glass case and we were trying to film him in the case and we just couldn't because uh, we were trying to do something with you know blue light. And uh, thanks to the Mütter's curator, um, we were able to you know, take him out of the case and uh, give him a little break for the night and, and uh, we filmed him, we took him out, and, and this blue light, and his, his, his skeleton just came alive. It's like, it's so white. There's something that's really ethereal and beautiful about it. I love it's one of my favorite shots in the film. And his skeleton is really something to behold because on one hand, you can look at it and it's really a human abomination. I mean, this is a disease that is disfiguring and it's literally the body developing a second skeleton. But on the other hand, it's it's really something that's very, very beautiful to behold because there's something ethereal about it and it's just very visually stunning. It's uh, it, There's something that's so present about it that it, it's just really humbling um, and it can be um, a really beautiful experience to be to be around something that you know people would call um, grotesque even or, or, or misformed but, but or deformed but we didn't find it that I, I certainly didn't find it to be that. It's strange because when I was reading the story that Kathleen wrote, I just kept wondering like why am I reading about this? Like it's something so reading about another person's pain like that is really not pleasant um, and it's hard to do. And I'm sure writing about it wasn't fun, and I'm sure living his life was often agonizing. But at the same time, this happened. I mean, do we do we deal with this by just ignoring it and pretending it didn't happen and that this disease didn't exist? Or do we confront it and increase our awareness and then try to do whatever we can, whether it's through donations or awareness or promoting uh, awareness mm -hmm. of it, try to get a cure for people with this disease? You know, there's a lot of progress being made, and one of the um, people really at the forefront of this, Dr. Um, Frederick Kaplan, I uh, interviewed, you know, part of my research with him, and I, he's in the short doc. Um, they, he, him and his team at the University of Pennsylvania actually developed uh, or, or discovered a uh, gene that causes FOP. And uh, I think this was in 2006. This was like a major medical discovery. And um, they're saying in that community that, that they're looking to um, 
find a cure, you know, in our, in our lifetime, uh, which is uh, pretty remarkable. Um, I, I, I agree uh, completely. I think that this story is, uh, there's such darkness there, um, but what really attracted me and what I really think is, is ultimately the takeaway is, is the light and the love. It's an incredible um, human drama and it's an incredible family story. Um, what I was really moved about with uh, Harry specifically was this incredible will to live. Even under these circumstances, this incredible will to live that ultimately towards the end, the only part of his body that would function um, was he was able to, to move his lips. And that's when he um, made this 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 bequest of that he this that he wanted to have his body donated to science and given to the mooter. Um, but just the 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 desire and and the need and the will to continue to express yourself. So listening to you talk about this, I feel like there's a way to kind of break out the story into three acts and tell yeah. me if this if this makes sense to you. I think you start with I think you start with the doctor kind of explaining the situation with this unusual skeleton. We see the sister. The sister thinks back somewhat somewhat like Rose in Titanic, you know, remembers back to um, <laughs> better days when her and her brother are having a really normal life. And at the end of this first act, he breaks a bone and it doesn't heal the way we expect it to. And that foreshadows all the problems that are going to come for him and his skeleton for the rest of his life. Act two is a lot of him dealing with what he's up against, realizing what he's up against, um, and all of the struggles that he has, and then all of the little victories. I mean, he still keeps his sense of humor. He discovers this love of movies. The movie theater does this really great thing for him. And he grows up having the disadvantage of his of this disease, but having the huge advantage of a sister who loves him and a sense of humor and a wonderful sense of escapism and an ability to get outside of himself. And there's a lot of different scenes to illustrate that. Most notably, the movie theater clearing out seats so that he has a place just for himself, um, just kind mm -hmm. of his private designated area. And then I think the last part, you know, are his final days and what's happening to him. But this triumphant thing that he does, you know, it, it's easy for somebody in his situation not to seem like they have much agency because he really physically can't move around. But he does have the agency to say, I want my body to be given to science and to be put on display like this so people can study it. At which point, um, I think he contributes to the breakthrough in finding the genetic root of this disease. So it may happen after he's gone from the screen, but we still have his sister there as kind of our, you know, our gateway into the story. And we get to have experience her joy as they find this, find the genetic component that contributes to this, which is the first step towards curing it. Um, and maybe, maybe it ends with you and your crew coming in and making a short film about him, which is really a kind of amazing short film and an amazing spin on it. Um, he doesn't get to live through the disco era, obviously, um, since he dies in 1973, but he's very close. And you make a film that kind of puts this very, what I find to be the most positive possible spin on what death could be. You say death is a dance with everyone you ever knew. And it is like a really fun 
Studio 54, season two of The Deuce style, <laughs> style disco where everybody is just like seeing everybody they've ever seen. And that's heaven. I mean, we all, when we think of heaven as like clouds and, you know, the good place, it doesn't necessarily even sound that fun. It sounds like living in a suburb, but if heaven is like a disco with everyone mingling and having fun and dancing, especially dancing, that seems really appealing, especially for someone who hasn't been able to move under their own power for a lot of their life. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of the thinking there uh, with the whole uh, discotheque concept was, first of all, uh, we wanted to do something that was very visual. Um, it just so happens that the museum itself, I find to be very visually stunning. But when we were there, one of the exhibits um, really featured a you know red shag carpet and red velvet curtains and uh, we thought you know let's let's get a, a, a mirror ball and really do something um totally out there but probably really right for the project of this i work um really closely with the cinematographer Stavanis Svetko, and we you know push each other's buttons and push the envelope try to at least and so you know we just kept one-upping uh what we could do with this you know with the red neon signs and and a very disco vibe so the, the thinking there was if you are incapacitated for the greater part of your life and really um, immobile for your entire adult life, what would, um, what could you imagine as an afterlife, like dancing? And we have an, an incredible child actor, um, Michael Marcus, who, you know, really had moves, I must say, much more so than I did at <laughs> that age. Uh, and we thought, you know, let's let's use this and this idea that you're bedridden um, for your entire life, your body's turning against you. Um, what would be the most freeing thing? It's probably, um, you know, dancing um, wildly, uh, you know, or running into the ocean and, and splashing around. I and mean, that's that's what that's what I think. I love. I love your ideas, by the way, um, Tim. About the, the three act structure, we need to pull you in on the on the feature screenplay. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, that you nailed it. Um, I think that the through line for the story um, that is definitely there in, in each act, and it's really the strongest component of each act, is the relationship, the sibling relationship between Harry and his older sister uh, Helene. I mean. You know, thinking about thinking uh, ahead to casting. Um, you know, we have so many ideas for for actors, but it really comes down to um, to that to, to that relationship because I think that's the, that's the that's the the element of the story that really um, grounds us um, and that we can all uh, relate to. I mean, whether or not you have a sibling, um, it's just a really really beautiful, profound relationship that is um so compassion it's so compassionate so so humanistic um and his sister really um you know sacrificed a good part of her life to care for harry um yeah. and was apparently you know never had a victim complex or, or or anything like that so it's just a really really beautiful moving relationship that is just i think that could be explored you know, cinematically um really well um it's strange when you look at adult when you look at the photos of the adult Harry, I mean, this is when he's 
really in the throes of FOP, but there is a a, a uh, undeniable physical resemblance to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's an actor you know that I love, and I think too. really could go there. As far, isn't he great? Really could go there as far as as Harry and for you know uh, Helene, his sister. Um, this could be a really um, this is just a very special part. I mean, I I would love to see you know Nicole Kidman or Rachel Weisz um, in that part. Um, in you know you kind of need someone who can just who literally has the ability to to transform um, on the screen, which I think those actresses have like in spades. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt would be really good because he's usually so physical. I mean, he's tightrope walking or dancing or fighting or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to see him get to act with his face, because he also has a great face to be able to express himself a lot just through his eyes, I think would be a really great acting challenge for him. And, and then Nicole Kidman and Rachel Weisz are so good because Kidman in particular is, I think, better than anybody at aging up and aging down. I mean, she looks kind of ageless and she could play much younger than she is, but she could also play much older than she is convincingly. Um, and this is obviously a role that has to go from 1933 when he's born to 1973 when he dies. Yeah. And it gives her a chance to kind of span 40 years. And I think she's probably the only actress I can think of who could span 40 years convincingly. Totally. I just saw the advertisement for Destroyer, you know, which, yeah. which is coming out. I was like, that is not, I saw her name pop up. That's not Nicole Kidman, but it is. <laughs> These are just actors that, that you just say, okay, you are this, this, and this, and you have to do this, this, and this. And then it's like, you know, they do it. They, they just are it. And uh, yeah, just incredible. Oh, and, and uh, you know, for, to portray Harry um, in adolescence as a kid, you know, there's this this adage: uh, don't work with, you know, animals or kids. And uh-huh. uh, in this case, uh, this actor, Michael Marcus, very young actor, I would this was I would love to work with him in a feature context. And I think that I would love to have him explore Harry as as an adolescent boy. Um, you know, because I I really think that uh, there there's something there working with him. He's like very much an old soul, a very very timeless um, kid, which is really hard uh to to find you know in a, in a child performer so i i love to to get a stab at working with him in a feature context yeah he's really really good in the short film red fantastique which we'll put up with this podcast um go to metabook.com yes yes <laughs> you and you see all these films i mean video just starts playing it's really very cool and different and i, I would oh, say thanks. Maybe this is like the David Lynch influence because Lynch is, went to art school in Philadelphia and I kept picturing the some of the exhibits about Lynch I've seen in Philly when I think about the Muter Museum. But it does mm-hmm. have like a very Lynchian feel and just the elegance of it, but also the sort of spookiness of it and the depth. I mean, his his notion of like, you knew, you want to dive in and go for bigger fish um, in meditation, saying you want to like really spend time going deep and going deep... Um, mm-hmm underwater in order to get the bigger ideas it feels like you're going deep underwater to get the bigger ideas yeah i mean i i personally david lynch is a, is a huge influence of mine and, and actually one of our upcoming projects it's um it's called blonde beautiful and dead it's it's a twin peaks uh, origin story it's um the real life uh, murder that uh, this young girl that inspired you know Laura Palmer and, and that whole murder mystery. I think that uh, I think that you're right. I think that there's um, a lot of different layers to what we're doing, um, yeah. 
and it's very film. It's it's very heavy on film, um, you know, music as well, and uh, and just、uh, and just performances. So it's、uh, you know, like I said, there, there's a traditional publishing aspect to it, but then there's a whole other、uh, production aspect to it that is,、uh, you know, I would say more Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And、yeah. the shorts are. It, I think that the shorts are,、um, you know, what, what's appropriate for、um, for this, you know,、um, venue, which is Netabook itself. But then what we're talking about is, you know, taking, especially in this instance, the idea of the short and you know expanding it, blowing it out a little bit for,、um, you know, a feature or anthology series or, or something like that. So that's definitely, I think, the direction we're headed in, which was much more.、Um, More, more in the production realm, definitely more in the film, TV realm.、Um, and I can't possibly let you mention the real Laura Palmer and not <laughs> <laughs> and not ask more about that. While we talked, I've Googled a little bit. So you're making your next project, or one of your next projects, is about the case that may have inspired Laura Palmer, whose death is the starting point of Twin Peaks, a show、yeah. we all love and a world we all love.、Um, Is this the Hazel Drew story? It is. This is one of the favorite. This is one of my favorite things、um, that I'm working on.、Uh, I was a huge Twin Peaks fan.、Uh, I still am. I was glued, you know, for the return.、Um, and this is a, a, a Twin Peaks origin story of sorts, where、uh, a lot of people don't realize this is one of those stories that's. Again, sometimes the best stories are out there, just waiting to be discovered. I think that that's the case with Harry、uh, Eastlack with Red Fantastique and, and Face Phantom,、uh, and I think that that's definitely the, the case with Blonde, Beautiful, and Dead, which is、uh, one of our upcoming projects that、uh, delves into、uh, the murder of a young woman uh, with. Uh, Young, beautiful young blonde woman with a double life. Sound familiar? So、wow. that、uh, inspired、um, the Laura Palmer, the Laura Palmer character, and inspired、uh, that whole the death of the Laura Palmer character that inspired the whole Twin Peaks milieu. Yes, exactly. And、uh, as a matter of fact, Mark Frost, who was you know we talked about David Lynch before,、uh, David Lynch's、um, co-creator on、uh, Twin Peaks. Had been told、uh, the story、uh, of this young woman who was murdered、um, and all the provocative details by his grandmother,、uh, who lived in the town、uh, Sand Lake, New York, where this murder happened, and it just stuck with them, and uh, uh, you know, sort of evolved into the, what became you know the whole Twin Peaks story iconography. It's her. her, her Murder、uh, is the circumstances surrounding that are、uh, really, really provocative. I mean, you really see where、um, the roots of the very offbeat, somewhat mysterious town, the young blonde woman,、um, various lovers, kind of a little bit of a double life,、um, murdered.、Um, this whole you know laundry list of, of suspects. I mean, it's it has such a. You really see the roots of the series and of, of Laura Palmer. Like so, so clearly in this, it's it's really, really.、Um, I, I I love this project. It's incredible. We we think of it as so David Lynch because it's like small town USA and small town USA、yeah. has dark secrets, but so much of it is Mark Frost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I think that that's a um that's um the origin for the series came from Mark Frost and from 
uh, a story that you know originated in the town where his grandmother lived. So again, it's just what, where those stories come from. You just never know. Hello, my friends. This is Tim again. Thank you for listening. If you are still listening, you probably are my friend, or you have become my friend. Thank you for listening to all this. Um, helping us along have been some wonderful songs that I want to give credit to right now. The first is Pulse, composed by Brian DuFord. We're actually listening to Pulse right now. I like this quite a lot. Also, the Red Room, Brian Seed Remix, composed by Brian DuFord. Discotech, the Brian Seed Remix, featuring Gabrielle, composed by Helene Mudiman. And the song we heard previously when we talked about the Twin Peaks project was the theme to Blonde, Beautiful, and Dead, composed by Jacob Yaffe. Thank you to all of these wonderful musicians. Uh, thank you to my wonderful guest, Benjamin. And if you'd like to learn more about this project, check out metabook.com or go ahead and Google The Face Phantom wherever you Google. Whatever search engine you use, whatever you do, is totally okay. Thank you and see you next week.